going to be looking at a prophecy in the Old Testament that perhaps you haven't studied very often, and that is the book of Hosea. And we're going to specifically look at Hosea chapter 11. And this is a book that is filled with gospel hope, filled with gospel hope. And I want us, I know we've just had a great time to connect and there are people back from college and people from out of town and it is an awesome thing to have that warm fellowship. But now I want us to focus on what's here in Hosea and I want to start with a word of prayer. Let's pray one more time as we approach the text. Father, we want to come um, humbly now. We want our minds to be um, engaged in your text and your word. I pray, God, that we would do so with humility. And God, I pray that you would give us light in our minds and our mindsets. And Lord, open our hearts so that we could be obedient children to what you have for us to do. Lord, reform us. If there are things in our lives that are wrong or sideways or areas that we have not yet seen that are sin patterns that we have yet to to have dealt with, I pray that we would deal with them. I pray, God, that you would um, focus us on Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, the one who sits on the throne of grace and provides a path for us to live as we live towards him, worshiping him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, this, this book of the Bible is one of the longest minor prophets in the Old Testament. And I just say that to say it's, it's a big book. We're only going to really focus on chapter 11 primarily, but it's a book that's filled with a thought. And that is this, unconditional love, unconditional love. You know, if I were to ask you what is unconditional love, I think many of you would say, look, it's pretty easy to define. It's just a love that um, no matter what you do, you can't lose. It's, it's not brought with conditions. It's, it's not something that, that is earned. It's something that's just there for me like a big safety net no matter what I do. Something that I cannot lose. And it's one thing to define it with words or to try to define unconditional love, and it's an entirely different thing to experience unconditional love. Have you ever experienced unconditional love? You know if you have. Perhaps your spouse loves you unconditionally, or you have a a best friend that loves you unconditionally. Someone that you can tell them anything, good, bad, or ugly, and they're going to love you anyway. You can even do things that are harmful toward that person, and they're going to still love you unconditionally. It's a safe relationship. It's a warm relationship. You know if you've experienced it, and you know if you have it or if you don't. Unconditional love is very, very precious and enjoyable. As an individual, I know that I have people that love me unconditionally, and it is the joy of my life. And I was trying to think, okay, how do I bring this from black and white to color? How do I bring this from conceptual to concrete for us? And I thought I would do it again with the Kratz family farm that we've been building with animals in our home. Okay, all right, just to bring you, bring you up to speed, if you've been following this in some of my introductions, you know, we got hamsters months ago. I think it's been a couple months. And then, secondly, we got a snake, but the snake is gone. So visitation of the Kratz home is open again, and you can come freely and not be concerned. Um, the snake is gone. He is retired. And, uh, and I just want to say, 
the snake in terms of love, there's no love for the snake. Not for me. I had no love for the snake. Um, not, not regular love or, or conditional. I, I didn't have unconditional love. I, sure, I didn't even have conditional love for the snake. Not, not any kind of love. But you think, how do we get rid of the snake? Well, I had to bargain. I had to make a deal. We got a dog, okay? We got a dog. And that, that sort of made everything go away for a time. So you say, well, man, how did you get a dog? Well, we, we didn't just get any dog. We got a very, very special dog. This is a dog that's a trained dog. It's, a, it's an English Jack Russell Terrier dog. And I've, I've only seen dogs like this in the movies, right? This is a dog that actually does what you tell it to do. Come, it comes, fetch, it fetches, it drops the ball at your hand. I've never seen anything like this, right? Get in the crate, it goes in the crate. Get in the car, it goes in the car. Goes to the bathroom on command. I've never had a dog that, I've never had a dog that goes out the door and you call it and it comes back. It's amazing. This dog is super dog, right? Judy is trying to get the dog to say, yes, ma'am, and she's on the way. I mean, it is really an obedient dog. But I'll tell you what, I love that dog, but I don't love that dog unconditionally. There are conditions. It can be super dog, wonder dog, but that dog could do the wrong set of things, and it could be gone. The love could be lost in our relationship, but I don't plan that to happen. But I don't love that dog unconditionally. But I'll tell you who I do love unconditionally. I love my kids unconditionally. You follow what I'm saying? That is so powerful in my life, and I'm sure it has been in yours, to love children unconditionally. No matter what my children do, I'm always going to love them unconditionally. There's, There's going to be sort of at the ground level a safety net of love for each of them. And I love my wife that way, but there's a special love that my wife and I both have towards our kids that's an unconditional love. And I was thinking of that, and I was thinking of some lyrics from a song that are very powerful to me along these lines. They're written by Sarah Groves. She's a Christian artist, and she's writing of her own love for her kids. She says, you will lose your baby teeth. At times you'll lose your faith in me. You will lose a lot of things, but you cannot lose my love. You may lose your appetite, your guiding sense of wrong and right. You may lose your will to fight, but you cannot lose my love. You will lose your confidence in times of trial, your common sense. You may lose your innocence, but you cannot lose my love. Many things can be misplaced. Your very memories be erased. No matter what the time or space, you cannot lose my love. Unconditional love. You know, there's no stronger ingredient in relationships than unconditional love. And there's no one else who can magnify unconditional love like God. No one can even compare to God in terms of magnifying what it looks like to unconditionally love somebody. Think about it. Unholy people, sinful people, people who run from God. God is holy. God is perfect. God is all-powerful. He's the creator. These are the created. And he pursues passionately a love for his created children. Unconditionally. When he sets his love and affection upon his children, it's unconditional. It's forever. It's undeserved. It's ill-deserved. And he loves them. He loves you. He loves me. Unconditionally. 
And he magnifies that in a way that we cannot. And it's found in this great book of the Bible, Unconditional Love. And I'm trying to answer a question this morning that's simply put like this. Why does God keep loving children who keep rebelling? That's what Hosea is all about. Why and maybe even how can God love children who keep running away? It's really the, de- the definition of unconditional love. And I want for you as a goal this morning to be moved by God's unconditional love. Unconditional love. I, I want you to be moved in your heart because God loves you unconditionally. It's so easy to get lost in, I think, God's bigness and our sinfulness and forget that fact that, yes, we're here to glorify him, but he all the while is unconditionally love focused on you. He's that God. And I think that that's so important to bring up. Well, first of all, Hosea 11, 1 through 4 This is our opportunity, first and foremost, to identify with a rebel child. Identifying with God's rebel son. This is sort of the first way to be moved by unconditional love. It's identifying with Israel, the rebel son in this text. Let me read verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son... The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Now this right here is a very, very unique paragraph in Old Testament scripture, and I'll tell you why. Most often in the Old Testament, when God reveals himself as a father or as God, he's addressing Israel in more of a corporate sense and less in terms of an intimate, caring, loving sense. Most often. I mean, the intimate relationships that you see in the scripture with God and someone else are few and far between. Adam and Eve having fellowship with Jesus in the garden would be one. Moses talking to God in a Christophany at the burning bush might be another. Abraham being blown away by God and his plan in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 22 would be another. I mean, you have a few historical characters in the Bible who talked and communed with God directly. But really, intimacy in this way is very foreign to the Old Testament scripture. And so this is a window into how God loved his people back then. And it's built on some history here. Hosea is speaking historically about God's rescue of the nation of Israel from Egypt. Did you see that there in verse 1? When Israel was a child, in other words, when it was yet becoming a nation, a little child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What is that? Well, that's when God rescued his people from the clutches of Pharaoh and redeemed them or bought them out of that bondage, a picture of the gospel, and brought them into 
the promised land. That's where this prophecy is born. It's born on that concept. In Exodus chapter 4, by the way, God calls Israel his firstborn son. So it's father-son language. But it's really rare to see this kind of language. Let me say this. This kind of language is built on desperate times for this nation. Anytime you have a prophet speaking, by the way, it's desperate times, okay? Whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Hosea, whether it's Micah, whomever, it's desperate times. Somebody's about to get hurt, okay, when an Old Testament prophet is speaking. And that's why I think even in our country's trials and tribulations that we're going through right now, uh, you know, in, in a strange sense, um, I'm sad for our nation, you know, because I want it to, to build back up. But in another sense, when we become desperate, we become a little bit more needy and attuned to the gospel, right? And so it's a good opportunity for preachers and people who share the, the gospel to say, hey, real hope is in Jesus Christ. And that's what this Old Testament prophet is doing. It's 722, and it's the northern kingdom, so it's Israel. We've been talking um, from Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah about Judah, the southern kingdom. Now we're talking about the northern kingdom. They were the ones that got taken away into captivity in 722 by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the bad guys, and this is about to happen because that nation, Israel, was in a whole lot of sin and party living during that time as a nation. As God's people. It's a picture of an Old Testament church. It's, it's a national church that's doing wrong. They were involved in idolatry. They were bowing down to Baals. They were praying to Baal gods to grow their crops. Baal being the god of fertility. They were worshiping things made of stone and wood. And you could see all of these judgment passages through the book of Hosea. They were involved in prostitution. They were involved in drunkenness. They were involved in mocking, arrogance, and cursing. You can look that up in Hosea 4, 2, and 11, and chapter chapter 7, 5, and 16. But there's one way to sort of get your arms around Hosea and this theme of unconditional love that breaks through. It's like a, a sun dawning in this text. And that goes all the way back to Hosea 1. And that is what God calls Hosea to do as his prophet. He calls Hosea in Hosea chapter 1 to marry a prostitute. We're talking about a surprise command. Okay, there's a lot in scripture that says flee immorality. You know, don't be unequally yoked with unspiritually minded people. But God wants to make a point And his point is coming clear through what he calls Hosea to do. And what he's calling Hosea to do is marry a prostitute. Look at verse 2. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, at first glance, what this is, is this is a judgment on Israel because who is Gomer? Gomer is is the, the, the wife that Hosea takes, and she is a picture of sinful Israel, rebellious Israel. And so there's a lot of condemnation here. Verse 3 says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, the son's name is Jezreel. The next verse talks about how there's going to be a bloodbath. And verse 5, In the valley of Jezreel, 
And that's judgment on Israel. And then she conceived again and bore a daughter. Hey, let's name the daughter, verse 6, no mercy, because there's not going to be any mercy for this sinful people. And then after she had weaned no mercy, verse 8 says she bore a son, call his name, not my people. Pretty strong language. God is a God of justice and he's showing his justice by marrying these are historic people this isn't just make-believe here this is actual Hosea marrying actual Gomer and then in Hosea chapter 3 you see where God moves from them coming together having children being a picture of judgment and condemnation to chapter 3 which is redemption redemption look at Verse 1, the Lord said to me again, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethich of barley and said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. This is the, a grand picture. As sort of hard as it is to get your mind around what God is commanding Hosea to do, this picture here in chapter 3 is the wonderful picture of redemption. Because God calls Hosea to go into a temple that's filled with prostitution and partying and every conceivable sin and debauchery that you can think of in your mind. And he says, look, I am going to pursue my wife with unconditional love and I'm going to buy her back. We were married. She's run away from me. She's in immorality. She's in wrong relationships. And I'm going to love her anyway and buy her back. This is the gospel. This is the God. Hey, guess what? I mean, are we too arrogant to see that in this text, Gomer is Israel, but Gomer is, is us, right? We're, we're the ones that run from God. We're the ones that, that, that flee from him. We're the ones that choose the world over God, and God pursues us unconditionally. At first, he he buys us out of our sin and transforms us. And then when we wander away, God is that committed to you where he's going to, again, overtake you and love you forever. That's the doctrine of adoption. He adopted you out of a running away state and brought you into his family. Well, Adoption is, is strongly seen here in Hosea 11. Turn back there. I mean, if we're kind of in the story of Hosea and Gomer, they, they marry, then there's um, a rebellion on Gomer's part, and she's fleeing, and then there's a buying back, and Hosea 11 really captures that same idea of God pursuing his people unconditionally. Look at it again. Historically, it was... God's child, verse 1, that he called out of Egypt, he calls that child my son. Very intimate, personal, father language that's given here. This language here is language we won't even see until the New Testament again. And then, the more that he called after Israel, verse 2, the more they went away sacrificing to Baals, 
And then verse 3, you see immediate grace to follow, follow on with this. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Now stop there. Ephraim is another name for Israel. It's another name for the northern kingdom. It was the most predominantly large tribe out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he's talking to Israel and he's saying, listen, I taught you how to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. Stop there. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, Israel, when you were at your most helpless state, whether under the tyranny and the whip of Pharaoh or in other times when you were down on the ground, worshiping Baals, worshiping false gods, I'm the one that kept picking you back up like a rebellious child. I've washed you off. I've picked you up. I've, I've set you up using some sort of, sort of cords or bands to be able to teach a child how to walk. I've done that. And if you've ever had the privilege of teaching a child how to walk, you know that that's a very precious thing to do. It's very um, sweet and it's very endearing. When we taught Owen how to walk, it was as if our twins forgot how to walk so they could join in the fun and they would wobble around too, you know, and say, hey, love me that way. I'm feeling a little bit left out. If you've ever seen the, the intimacy and the love between a, a mom and a child when a child needs help, you know that that love is strong and powerful. Some of you know that uh, Owen, our youngest son, was, got a virus this last week, and he was actually hospitalized for a couple nights in the hospital. And, and you know what? Mom is just on duty. Why? Because she's just devoted in that love lock for that son. And he's doing fine, and he's home and recovering. But the question is, do we believe that God has this kind of passionate, this range of emotion for us? Is that tenable? Well, we'll see, we'll see that in a moment. But I do want to look at the justice of God in verses 5 and 6 here because, because it's important in the story to know that God's judgment is, is on display as well. Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. So God now is speaking to Israel, saying, listen, I loved you in this way, but I'm judging you. But Assyria shall be their king. There's a reverse exodus. It's like you came out of Egypt, but guess what? Now you're going to be captured and recaptured by the Assyrian king. The sword's going to rage against you. You're going to be devoured. But wait a minute. We're moving now from God's intimate love, how his love is intimate, to secondly, how God's love is compassionate. Look at verses 8 and 9. This sort of blew me away when I saw these verses. It says, how can I give, up, give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. All right, first of all, we're supposed to identify with Israel, with the rebel son. We're supposed to say, look, I'm that Israel. I'm that person. I'm the one who's run from God. And God is that compassionate, loving God who has pursued me intimately. And now I want you to see how he pursues you with his compassion. Because in verse 8, all of a sudden, you, we get a window into the heart of God that is very rare and very uncommon. And that is showing us that God's Love is in a battle with God's wrath. 
Now, he's both, he's equally loving as he is wrathful, but this is a window into the heart of God, where he's actually saying, look, I, I, you deserve judgment, you need judgment, Assyrian judgment's coming, but I want to tell you this, my heart is recoiling within me. And in essence, what he's saying is, I am right to snuff you out as a nation, but I am going to send you into captivity and then I'm going to bring you back because love is overriding here. Do you see that? I mean, do you believe God is like that? Or do you think he's just sort of, sort of disassociated from us? James Montgomery Boyce is a, a great um, pastor. He's a late pastor. He's, he died uh, in the late 90s. He was the pastor of a historic church in Philadelphia called 10th Presbyterian Church. James Montgomery Boyce writes this about these verses. He says, God has been comparing himself to a man, a human father. He has spoken of his love and, and, and the ingratitude and irony of having Israel go her own way rather than remaining with him. It is a striking image, now listen, but in the back of our minds, we are always thinking that it is, after all, an image and not to be pressed too far. God loves us, yes, but surely not with the full emotions that a human father would have at the rebellion of his son. He says, no. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, they're there. Again, do we believe that God has the full range of emotion? Just picture one of your children or somebody you love dearly that's running away from you. Is your heart going to just condemn them and cut them off? If you unconditionally love them, you're going to pursue them. And the point here is that God is that kind of God. and He's that kind of lover of our souls. He's like that. Look at verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Let me just point out what God was debating over. He was comparing the northern kingdom, verse 8, to Adma and Zeboim. Those places were cities that were incorporated with the judgment that was put on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins. That's how desperate and serious the times were. So he was going to wipe them out. But then his heart recoils within himself and he appeals to his own character for why he's not utterly going to snuff them out. And that's verse 9. This really jumped out at me. It says, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. How is it that God can choose not to judge people who are rightfully set up for judgment? You know how? He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. He does unexpected, surprising things, does he not? Hey, he saved me. I didn't deserve that. I, I, I have a vivid memory and recollection of why I should not be saved. But he did it. Unexpected. The gospel is surprising, right? How is it that God decides in his heart not to judge people and send people to eternal hell? Why, why would he do that? Why would he call, I mean, here's another surprise in Hosea. Why would he call Hosea to marry a prostitute? I mean, that just goes counterintuitive all over the place, right? But he does that. Why? Because he wants to show how merciful God is. 
how gracious God can be, how glorious the gospel truly is, where it buys you out of a sinful situation. That's the grace of the gospel. God does surprising things. And in this text, we understand that God's holiness is overriding his wrath. His holiness. Now, what do I mean by that? In one sense, you think, well, he's holy, so that's why he would exercise wrath and judgment, right? Well, holiness can mean two things for us here regarding God. First of all, holiness is sinlessness. It means God is completely pure. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's thrice holy, as Isaiah 6 tells us. Sin can't go to God. It can't go from God. We know that from James 1. He's perfect, right? But holiness means something else as well. Holiness means that God is different than we are. It means God is different than all of creation. He's creator, he's God, and creation isn't. That's what holiness means. One way to put it is this way. It's kind of a play on words. God is wholly other than we are. He's different than we are. And the fact that he's different and he's not a man like us gives him the freedom to give grace in a way that would be unexpected and surprising. He's holy. Well, his holiness, his holiness is why he redeems this people. And in verses 10 and 11, we not only have seen God's love is intimate, his love is compassionate, but it's unquenchable. It's unquenchable for the rebel son. This is what we need to identify with if we're going to be moved to feel God's compassion. Look at verses 10 and 11. They, meaning Israel, they, this is in the future, shall go after the Lord. This is them coming back. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is a picture of God roaring like a lion and calling his children home to Israel. And frankly, the children of Israel are coming home in all directions. They're coming from the west. They're coming from the northeast, from Assyria. They're coming from the south, from Egypt. And they're coming home. And probably, and I think that this is a picture of the millennial kingdom in the future, where ethnic Israel is at center at center place, at center stage in the millennial kingdom where Jesus is ruling and reigning over them for a thousand years. I think this is the Romans 11 ingathering of Israel in the future. But it's a promise to Israel. Now, we've, we've sort of started by saying let's identify with the rebel son of Israel. But now I want us to identify with a second son, a different son. You have a rebel son, that's Israel, but guess what? There's God's beloved son, and we need to identify with him, because that's where there is hope. And really, as we look through these uh, points in this text, it's easy to go, man, how could God really be intimately connected to this rebellious people? How could he be compassionate over them, and how could his love be unquenchable? Really, the answer three times over is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. We've looked at, you know, God's rebellious son. Now we're looking at a son that never rebelled. Turn in, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. 
to see where this prophecy picks up. Matthew chapter 2. This, again, is a story we've looked at a couple times. Uh, One quote in verse 6 is from the book of Micah that we saw a few weeks ago about Bethlehem, this little, obscure, 300-person town where Jesus comes from. That's where Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, was born, okay? In a manger, in a feeding trough, something very unexpected. And the prophecy from Hosea ties together beginning in verse 13. Remember Herod, he wanted to wipe out the Messiah. He didn't want to be trumped by him. He had sent the Magi out to show him where the Messiah was. They were warned not to do that. They left. Herod got mad. Herod sends um, people, invaders, to destroy and slaughter all of the two-year-old boys and under to death to try to wipe out the Messiah. And in verse 13, the story picks up. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Why did Jesus have to go to Egypt? Did you ever think about that? Why, why was this necessary? It was necessary because of this. Let me just start broad and then we'll get specific. All of the Bible is about Jesus and his gospel. And so these tie together. It's like Hosea 11.1 where Hosea is talking about Egypt. I mean Israel being God's child, his child. He says he's my child that came out of Egypt. That was to picture redemption and the gospel. That was a picture of God buying back his people out of bondage and rescuing them. And Jesus, he fulfilled that picture by him having to go down to Egypt because all of the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the point of that story in Exodus. Do you know that? He's the point. The only way that Someone can be spiritually redeemed is because Jesus came here as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. All of the Bible, historically, ceremonially, prophetically, is about Jesus. So every story in history ultimately finds its point in Jesus. So the Exodus was about Jesus. It was about his gospel where people were redeemed. And this comes clear as we learn of him In the New Testament. The children of Israel, as they wandered through the wilderness, where were they going to? They were going to the promised land. And Hebrews 4 clarifies for us that the promised land is a picture of where? Heaven. Heaven. And so that story in the Old Testament was about Jesus Christ and his gospel that gets us to heaven. The whole ceremonial system... All of the sacrifices that created veritable butcher shops in the Old Testament because as people sinned, more sacrifices had to be grinded out. All of that was to build up to a moment where John the Baptist would say, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of that statement was freighted with all of those Old Testament sacrifices. You know, Jesus said this about himself when he met the two on the road to Emmaus after he'd risen from the dead. Remember that story? 
He met them. He hung out with them. He's explaining things to them. He's eating with them. And their eyes are kind of just, um, you know, not getting it. They're not seeing Jesus for who he really is until Jesus vanishes and leaves. But this is what Jesus said to them in Luke 24. It says, it says of what he did, Luke said, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Very strong statement. When you start with the writings of Moses, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then you got all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you have all the minor prophets, including Hosea. Jesus sat there and gave the greatest sermon of all times, I think, where he interpreted all of the Old Testament scriptures in light of himself. Do you see that? It was all about him. All of the Old Testament stories are about Jesus Christ. That's why it's important for us to tie this together. That's why the circumstances led Jesus to have to go down to Egypt so that he could emerge from Egypt and connect the dots between Israel's exodus and being rescued from Egypt. Because Jesus is the point of that story. It's all about him. You know, once you know about Jesus, you read the Old Testament in an entirely different way. You should never be able to hear an Old Testament sermon that would satisfy a good Jewish rabbi. Ever. Because the point is about Jesus and how he's the Savior. He's God incarnate. It's the only way that Jesus could have intimate love towards us. It's the only way Jesus' love can be unconditional. Do you ever think about that? It's the only way. Is the only way God's love can be unconditional is because of Jesus. It's because he made a way for God's wrath to be assuaged on our behalf. Now, I just want to point something out from verse 15 of Matthew 2. Matthew 2. Um, it says, you know, verse 14, He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. This is Joseph taking Mary and Jesus down there. And then verse 15, And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. I just want to point out those two words, my son, because Jesus introduces a whole new phase of intimacy that we are supposed to have with God. Remember, I'm making a lot about how Hosea kind of opens that door of father to son like intimacy, you know? Well, Jesus really opens that door bigger when he came. J.I. Packer put it this way in his book, Knowing God, regarding the fatherhood of God. He said, the Christian name for God is Father. The Christian name for God is Father. John, the apostle, loved Jesus in a way where he laid back on Jesus' chest at Passover. And that's introducing to us an intimate, personal relationship that we have with him. We are invited into the fellowship that God the Father has with his son. And he's saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. And Jesus said to Mary Magdalene when he rose from the dead and was in the garden, he said, listen, don't cling to me for I have ascended. I've not yet ascended to my father. I'm ascending to, listen to this, my father and your father, to my God and your God. Do you see how... Jesus is inviting Mary Magdalene into that relationship. That's what Jesus 
introduces to us God's intimacy in our lives personally. It's very important to understand that. If you're going to understand God's unconditional love, you have to understand his intimate love for you. And what he expects of you, he expects you and me to know him personally, intimately. I'm reflecting back in Hosea chapter 11, something I didn't point out. I read it in verses, you know, the early verses there about how God as a father um, is taking care of the needs of his children. I can't resist. Turn back to Hosea. I got to just point this out. Hosea 11. Verse 4, I didn't open this up. At the end it says, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. This language of intimacy is so powerful here when you think about what God is talking about doing for his children. It's like a farmer who, who takes his ox or his donkey and sees some food, some grass, and he, he lifts the yoke up like this. And this is something farmers would do when they would have compassion on their animals. I mean, it's just a, a worker beast, and, but he's lifting the yoke up so that the animal can graze. Or he's loosening the harness around the jaws. It's a picture of loosening it up so that the ox can thresh, so that, so that the animals can eat and get their food. It reminds me of God's shepherding relationship that he has for his sheep as portrayed in Psalm 23. He leads you by still waters so you can drink. It's like he's laying lambs down in the grassy meadows so that they can eat. That's God's intimate love for you and for me, and it came through Jesus Christ. All right. Now, secondly, Jesus is why God's love is compassionate. How can God be compassionate towards us? Remember when we were talking back in Hosea 11, in verse 8, how God's heart was recoiling in himself, how his, his wrath And love, we're doing battle. And he's saying, look, I could blow you away like Sodom and Gomorrah, but I'm not a man like you are. I'm God and I'm holy and I can do what I want, right? I'm not going to obliterate you. How can he do that? Well, one answer is, and we found in the text, God's holy so he can do whatever he wants. But it gets more specific in the New Testament because God's wrath has to be justified, right? So how is God's wrath justified against sin? When he saves somebody, it's always justified through one person, and that's Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, it talks about how at this present time, Jesus was put forth as the satisfaction for sin. The big word is propitiation. he, he, He satisfied his wrath because Jesus Christ took the wrath upon himself. And then in verse 26, Romans 3, 26, the Bible calls Jesus both just and justifier. That's a very important idea with this text. How can God love us unconditionally? How can he pursue rebellious people? Well, it's because when he looks at our rebellion, he says, I have taken my wrath against your rebellion, and I've put it on my son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is holy and perfect, so he can take that wrath and satisfy me, and I put my grace instead on you. Jesus is just. He was holy enough 
to accept the wrath of God against himself on our behalf. And he's the justifier. And he's the one who justifies you and makes you able to receive mercy. All right, lastly, Jesus is why God's love is unquenchable. Unquenchable, unstoppable. You know, in Hosea, just if you're there, turn over to Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. This is a verse that Paul quotes in the New Testament. Hosea says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, have you ever heard of this? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Where's that quoted? It's quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, when Paul was talking about the resurrection. Guess what? The only reason why we know that we are absolutely secure, that we cannot lose God's love, that we cannot be snatched out of his hand, that that his love will always be unquenchable no matter what we do, is because Jesus rose from the dead. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He died on the cross and he rose on the third day. And what Paul says here is so important because for us, we have this same hope. And that is when the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Listen, O death, where is your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That was all born in Hosea. These glints and glimmers of the gospel are there in Hosea and are connected to Jesus and his resurrection. Again, if you forget everything else I said and remember this one point, remember that all of the Old Testament and all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. It's all found in him. And the same hope that Hosea gave to the children of Israel, Israel that's in captivity, you're going to be in captivity, but you're going to be rescued in the future. And you'll be able to say, you know, plagues and death and sickness, where is your sting? Because I'm rescued by God. That same hope is magnified and carried forward in the gospel where we say, look, death, I'm not scared of you anymore. There isn't a sting there because I'm going to be with Jesus Christ. Do you realize that unconditional love is the foundation for hope like that? I hope you do. Well, how do we get moved by love this week? Let me give you some practical ideas. Number one, you have to believe your sin personally grieves God. That's where you got to start, personally. This isn't just about Old Testament Israel, how sinful they were, well, they're really awful people. is isn't about, you know, those people over there or these people outside the church. This is now talking very personally to your own heart where you need to say, you know what? If I look into God's eyes and see in the reflection of his eyes my sin, wow, I'm undone. If the video camera was running in your house and tape recording the things that are going on in your mind or in your words, how would you stand up? Well, the way to begin to get hope and to encounter God's unconditional love is to first see that we need it, right? We grieve the Holy Spirit. Number two, you have to believe God loves you personally in spite of your sin. We are the one being bought out 
of our own sin. We're like Gomer who's bought out by Jesus Christ. That's where the hope flames up in our hearts where we go, God, but by the grace of God, I would still be in my sin, but you've rescued me. And number three, you have to believe God sent his son to make a way for you to be his son. Do you believe you're adopted as his child? Adoption is one of the most beautiful doctrines in all of the scripture. And just as we were God's rebel sons, we are also his beloved sons. We are in the fellowship with God as his children. Number four, you have to believe God's love for you is unquenchable. Do you ever come to the place where you go, man, you know, I think I could step over a line and go too far and God would just forget about me. That's just not biblical. God loves you with an undying love. He loved Israel that way. He loves his own son that way. And we are in Christ and loved in that way. Believing these things will move you to enjoy the love of God that is unquenchable and unconditional. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that's found in the gospel. We thank you, God, that you have given us uh, a standing in grace that is amazing. It's unmovable. We are in the beloved. We are captured by you, God. And we thank you that we were straying like, like lambs that were led astray. We were going in the wrong direction and you rescued us. God, I pray that our hearts would be moved by your love this week, that we would be enjoying you evermore as we anticipate heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.